Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and a special guest. Together, we'll trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 10. This is an effing disaster. At 9 a.m. on a clear, sunny morning in San Francisco, a crowd began to gather on the steps of the California Supreme Court. It was Thursday, May 15, 2008. The verdict in the marriage case was due in one hour. This was the culmination of the lawsuits that followed the San Francisco City Hall marriages. After the California Supreme Court stopped the weddings in 2004, the city and various nonprofits had spent four years filing briefs, getting rulings, appealing, filing more briefs, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting. The plaintiffs went right for the jugular of the marriage ban. They argued that Pete Knight's Prop 22, passed eight years earlier, violated the California Constitution and should be overturned. So far, they'd won their case in Superior Court, then lost it on appeal in District Court. Today, the California Supreme Court would declare a winner once and for all. Longtime grassroots activist Molly McKay lingered on the fringes of the crowd outside the court, checking her watch every few minutes. She'd set aside her traditional wedding dress garb for the day, opting instead for a button-down cream suit and pearl necklace. She saw familiar faces all around, the activists who had been showing up to every ruling, every protest, and every march for the last few years. But today... The crowd was larger. There were new faces alongside the old friends, many of them casual observers drawn to the court by the promise of a historic ruling that could change the course of American history. As the minutes ticked by, the crowd surged on all sides, and Molly anxiously watched the court for signs that the ruling was ready. Though surrounded by friends, Molly was a bundle of nerves. She kept herself occupied with her usual tasks, handing out heart-shaped stickers to passers-by and offering encouraging slogans. Her heart was pounding, but she knew she was where she belonged, out on the street, embedded with grassroots citizens. Thousands of activist followers would look to her to make sense of whatever decision awaited them that day. Kate Kendall paced in a waiting room inside the court. She, too, knew that she was where she belonged, in the courthouse, surrounded by top legal minds from the movement's nonprofits, including her own National Center for Lesbian Rights. They'd spent the last four years of their lives working tirelessly to overturn Pete Knight's ban on behalf of every queer person in California. Today's decision would determine whether that work was worthwhile or in vain. Terry Stewart, the deputy city attorney of San Francisco, sat in her office across the street, flanked by city officials. Like Molly's Grassroots and Kate's nonprofits, Terry and her team had spent the last four years pushing intently for marriage equality after having issued around 4,000 licenses to LGBT couples in 2004. Despite being one of the couples whose relationship would be affected by the ruling, Terry had maintained a dispassionate focus on the facts of the case, never once indulging in emotional hand-wringing. The people of San Francisco, citizens, tourists, longtime residents, and temporary guests, depended on her to wield the law on their behalf. No one knew more acutely than Molly and Kate and Terry that they were poised on a precipice of history. The memories of 2004 were still fresh in their minds, the explosion of joy when marriages were momentarily possible, the endless line of couples from all over the world waiting to wed, the brief few weeks when love mattered more than an unjust law. They had waited four years, all working within their own worlds, to restore that magical state. Today's ruling would either herald a return of marriage or a defeat that would take many more years to overcome. Across the room from Kate, a door opened and a big burly clerk emerged with a banker's box full of copies of the ruling. Here you go, folks, he said, dumping the box on a desk. 
Kate saw the look on his face and knew instantly what it meant. Still waiting outside, Molly waved nervously to friends in the gathering crowd, which now numbered about a hundred. Hopeful gay couples stood at the police barricades, some holding signs, others with kids sitting on their shoulders. News crews' tripods perched on the court steps. Microphones hovered over the couple's heads, poised for a reaction. A block away in City Hall, Terry Stewart was hunched over a speakerphone listening to Lexi, one of the staff attorneys who was at the courthouse. Lexi was crying. I think we won, she gasped, reading the ruling out loud as the city's lawyers crowded around the phone. The room in the courthouse was in an uproar, with everyone frantically flipping through the pages and crying and hugging. Outside, the crowd waited in a hush, pressing against the barricades. I'm going to watch my second hand, Molly said, eyes darting from her watch to the courthouse doors. Her eyes flicked across the faces of the court employees. When you look in the bailiffs' faces, do you think they know? She scrutinized the bailiffs as the cameras on the steps stared back down at her. A man walked out of the building, a stack of stapled papers in his hand. Molly charged forward. Is that the decision? Do you have copies? she asked. He ignored her. Behind him, Kate Kendall appeared, beaming in the doorway, the ruling held aloft in her hand. Do you have the decision? Molly shouted, eyes wide. The court reversed, the man told her, walking off. Molly stared blankly back, not understanding for a moment. Rev- what? What does that? But that... And at the same moment that she realized that Prop 22 had been erased... Her questions were suddenly drowned out by the crowd's explosion of ecstatic screams, into which she finally joined her voice. Terry heard the crowd's cheer from a block away. I don't think the other side has enough people to make that amount of noise, she said. Look what you did, Kate told Gavin Newsom an hour or so later. They were standing in a room at City Hall, preparing for a press conference. All around them were hundreds of supporters, their faces wet with tears and their throats sore from cheering. It's inevitable. The door's wide open now. It's going to happen, Gavin bellowed to the crowd and the cameras, whether you like it or not. Behind him, hundreds of onlookers roared their approval. Oh, shit, Kate thought. Why did he just say that? Hours later, Kate returned to the NCLR office. She was exhausted from celebrations and interviews, her cell phone battery long dead, and it was still only mid-afternoon. She walked into her office, not bothering to close the door, and dialed a number on speakerphone. Sandy, her partner who worked a few blocks away at the ACLU, picked up. "'Will you marry me?' blurted Kate. She hadn't given the question any thought. It just came out. Her staffers' heads appeared in office doors around the office. "'Just a minute,' said Sandy. More staffers appeared around Kate. In the background, they could hear Sandy calling to her office mates. "'Denise, come here! Susan, come here! Randy, come here! Come here! Come here!' Sandy returned to the phone. "'Okay,' she said, her voice leaning closer. "'Say it again.' "'Will you marry me?' Kate yelled, and staffers in both offices drowned out Sandy's response with their cheers. That night, when Kate and Sandy got home, they listened to their kids Julian and Ariana describe how their schools stopped classes and held assemblies to explain the ruling. Ariana giddily reported that the teachers had handed out red vines to celebrate. "'So when's the wedding?' Sandy asked Kate. "'Oh, God,' Kate thought. "'This is serious.' All that night, a throng filled the Castro to dance and celebrate. They'd just won a four-year court battle to win the freedom to marry. Virtually nobody was thinking about how they might soon face the same fight in a statewide election. The first order of business was getting Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon married again. Del was 87 and frail. City Hall staffers put together another wedding, this time without the need for secrecy beforehand. They married with the knowledge that their time together might soon be over. We're not getting younger, Del told a reporter a few days before they retook their vows. It was pandemonium, Kate recalled. The rotunda was packed for the ceremony, and moments later, other couples flooded in to apply for licenses of their own. But Kate wasn't ready to celebrate. I had a sense of dread the whole time, she said. 
Word had just come down that their opponents had collected enough signatures to put a new marriage ban on the ballot, one that would amend the Constitution, overriding the ruling from the Supreme Court. I really wanted to win, Kate said. I thought we could win. I thought, surely, once people win this right and people see their neighbors and friends getting married, they're not going to take it away. But the new challenge was something that cast a pall over the celebrations. It was in the back of my mind constantly. Dell and Phyllis had been together for nearly 60 years when they married for the second time. 60 years of writing newsletters like The Ladder and books like Lesbian Love and Liberation, giving talks and founding organizations. As a couple, they convinced the National Organization for Women to consider lesbian issues a feminist concern. They created the Alice B. Toklas Club to elect queer women to office. They were delegates to the White House Conference on Aging. Since before most of us were born, they served as a voice for millions of people afraid to speak. It's hard to think of a single word to encapsulate the enormity of what these two women accomplished through their partnership, for a dedication spanning decades, or for a companionship that inspired them both to greatness every day of their lives. Well, actually, there is one word. Marriage. It's a simple word, and it is defined by what Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon achieved together. Two months later, Del passed away. Her last act of activism was her most personal Marrying the love of her life, said Kate. In the weeks leading up to the start of marriage, Jared Scherer was electrified. Four years after serving as a witness for his friends Brian and EJ at City Hall, he still remembered every detail, particularly the emotional high. He wanted to recapture that feeling, but there was just one problem. He didn't know anyone who was planning a wedding. As it turned out, he didn't have to. San Francisco caters to all flavors of endorphin addicts, including those who crave the fix of a wedding. The city, he learned through a similarly afflicted co-worker, allowed citizens to become volunteer deputy marriage commissioners. All it took was a few training sessions, and then he could stand around City Hall in black robes, waiting for a couple to arrive, read some vows, and pronounce them married. I wanted to be a part of it, he said. It would be such an incredible experience to be involved in someone's life during this exciting moment in their lives. Before he knew it, he and ten other volunteer marriage junkies were sitting in a training session and preparing for an onslaught of queers in love. His first gay marriage didn't go exactly as planned. It started with a call from his friend Keith around 7 a.m. on June 17th, the first day that gay couples could wed. Jared was newly sworn in and had just arrived at City Hall when his phone rang. I'm in the car, Keith told him. Tyler and Spencer decided to get married today, but they don't have an appointment. Jared knew that to prevent a repeat of 2004's long lines, City Hall had instituted a by-appointment-only policy at the marriage counter. The proper thing to do would be to tell them to come back another day, but Tyler and Spencer were a special case. Spencer was a former Mormon missionary, and Tyler was a direct descendant of one of Joseph Smith's close confidants. As a child, Spencer's father scolded him for having too many female friends. As a teen, his favorite movie was Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And despite having been trained to regard homosexuality as an abomination their whole lives— the two boys couldn't help falling for each other during a school break in 2001. Spencer's fondness for Tu Wong Fu didn't go unnoticed by his father. I was returning to college, and he noticed that I'd been spending a lot of time with a new friend, Spencer later recalled, and wondered if it might have something to do with the fact that I liked that film. Just to be clear, Tu Wong Fu is about three ostentatious drag queens who give a sleepy small town a fabulous makeover. Spencer and Tyler, on the other hand, were doing their best to fly under the radar— Nevertheless, Spencer's father must have detected some common thread between his quiet law student son and Wesley Snipes in a dress and high heels, and he started asking uncomfortable questions. 
I was terrified, Spencer said. It was so against everything that I believed, everything that my family wanted for me. To admit to myself and then to them that I'm gay was very, very difficult. His family wasn't pleased when he came out. My mom cried for weeks, Spencer recalled. For the next six years, Spencer's family begrudgingly tolerated Tyler's presence at holidays. The two boys moved together to San Francisco for school, which put some easier distance between them and the hostile family. I struggled for a long time to reconcile being gay with being Mormon, Spencer wrote in a blog post. But, he added, I'd found Tyler and was feeling for the first time the joy and wholeness that comes with allowing oneself to love and be loved. No omnipotent God, I became convinced, could deny any of us the opportunity to lead a life that is fully lived, fully shared, or fully loved. On the morning that marriage became legal, they woke up, looked at each other, and said, Let's go do it. And that's how they found themselves heading down to City Hall with their friend Keith, first thing in the morning on June 17th. Get here quickly, Jared told Keith over the phone. Things are pretty quiet right now. The earlier the better. Hopefully we can work something out. Jared met them in the rotunda. He was wearing his high school graduation gown, which he'd brought from home in case City Hall didn't have enough black robes for the commissioners. It was still early enough that a crowd hadn't formed as they approached a security guard at the door of the light court, morning sun streaming through the skylight into the chamber beyond. We don't have an appointment, but we want to get married today, said one of them. What do we do? The guard looked the nervous couple up and down and glanced at Jared in his high school robe. I'm going to turn my back and you're going to walk into the light court and we're not going to say anything about this, the guard said. Jared was shaking and his friends bawled as he began his first official ceremony. As deputy marriage commissioner, I now pronounce you partners for life, he heard himself say. His heart was racing. The rush of 2004 was back. News cameras swarmed Tyler and Spencer as they clutched each other, tears streaming down their faces, and they spent the rest of their wedding day doing interviews. Oh, sure, there was a measure on the ballot that would have put a stop to the weddings. It was called Prop 8 or whatever, and it would add a marriage ban to the state constitution. But popular opinion was that it would go down in flames. After all, who would want to ban marriage? People were deluding themselves, said Kate Kendall. She was on the executive committee of the No on 8 campaign, along with the leaders of about 30 other organizations around the state. They had inherited a structure left by Mike Marshall and the Prop 22 effort eight years earlier, and while the campaign organization was sound, Kate saw another defeat looming. For one thing, the polling numbers looked terrible. We were convinced that the best thing was to get as many same-sex couples and their families on television, said Jeff Kors, head of Equality California. So we had every media market, we had couples trained, we had every language, and for the first three weeks after marriages started, all you heard was marriage. But the gay marriage media blitz was overwhelming for voters. Internal July polls showed that after a month, support for the marriage ban had surged by 18 points. To be fair, the volume of gay marriage that summer was a bit much, even for gays. All summer, California was flooded with images of gay couples getting married. You couldn't turn on the news or open a paper without seeing same-sex wedding toppers, and it looked like wedding invitations were just springing spontaneously from every mailbox. San Francisco was delighted for all the Tylers and Spencers, of course, but sometimes, after wading through matching brides at City Hall, engagement photo sessions around the Castro, and tin cans tied to matching mopeds in the hate, you just wanted to say, enough. Maybe it wouldn't have felt like that if the marriage victory hadn't seemed so spontaneous. As it was, nobody outside of the LGBT activist circles even knew that the Supreme Court was about to rule on marriage, so it took most of the state completely by surprise. California seemed to turn from a straights-only chapel one day to the Las Vegas of gay weddings the next. 
We should have been preparing with money and a paid media campaign that humanized our lives in 2006 and 2007, said Kate. But nobody thought that was necessary. Nobody wanted to fund that. People were like, oh my gosh, everybody loves that I got married. My family's completely supportive. But they weren't. Research showed that many of the family members of gay couples, even the ones that wed, were among those supporting Prop 8. Early on, the No on 8 committee had hired a campaign manager named Steve Smith, who was convinced that he could win this fight. On paper, Steve looked like a good choice. He'd worked in progressive causes for years and had never lost a no campaign. But he also had never worked on a gay ballot measure. And as the market for campaign managers went, pickings were slim. It was 2008, and Obama was running for president, so the best consultants were already locked into the presidential campaign and key congressional elections. There were other warning signs. Grassroots organizers, the people who actually did the hard work of knocking on doors and handing out flyers, were desperate for resources, but found that the campaign had little to give. People wanted lawn signs. They wanted templates of letters to the editor, Kate sighed. But we could not get this shit through. I could have cut off my right arm and not get what we needed. The campaign consultant and the media firm did not appreciate how serious this fight was. They thought we were going to win. Working with grassroots groups, Molly McKay was starting to panic as well. I cannot believe this, she remembered saying to her fellow activists. They're not showing gay people in our ads. They're telling our chapter leaders to shut up. They don't want us to do the marriage counter events. Years of on-the-ground experience had taught Molly what worked, how to grab attention, and how to change minds. But to the campaign consultants, organizers like Molly were just a pain in the neck. We couldn't even figure out who on the eight team we were supposed to lobby, she said. And don't even get me started on the Central Valley, the people who took the brunt of this horrible, hateful campaign. They'd call me crying, begging, we're drowning in a sea of yes on eight signs. Can we just get five signs? Molly did the best she could, placing calls to the no on eight campaign with repeated sign requests. But the campaign wanted so much control over sign placement that they refused to send any. Or at best, they said, grassroots groups would have to fundraise to buy them from the campaign. So instead, Molly got creative. She went to a sign shop on her own and printed exact duplicates of the official versions to distribute to communities in need. When the campaign found out, they were furious. A low point came one morning when Kate opened the paper to read the headline, Prop 8 Going Down in Defeat by 12 Points. The Public Policy Institute of California had done a survey that somehow managed to wildly overstate opposition to Prop 8. This is an effing disaster, Kate thought. Donors would be even less likely to give if they thought their money wasn't needed. Why bother if we're 12 points ahead? But she knew that various internal polls showed them either way behind or, at best, tied with the opposition. Prop 8 was going to pass. It was clear to Kate that if she wanted to get married, she'd better do it quick. It was a quick ceremony in the mayor's office. Shockingly, she wasn't sick of City Hall weddings yet, attended by a few dozen family and friends and officiated by Donna Hitchens, Kate's friend and mentor and the founder of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. It was a bit of a shock to Kate that she was actually getting married. I grew up in Utah where there's a lot of patriarchy, she said. She'd grown up seeing marriage as an oppressive heterosexual institution, and even if it had been an option for gays and lesbians, she never really wanted one for herself. Despite having witnessed the power of Phyllis and Dell, the lines around the block and the sobbing couples on the first day of marriage, it still wasn't really resonating with me personally. Her lawyerly instincts also gave her pause. We were up to our eyeballs in litigation, she said. It seemed really weird to be a part of a class of people whose marriages I was defending. I was the lawyer. I wasn't a client. I didn't want to be the client. And yet, there she was, standing with Sandy and their two kids, Julian, 12, and Ariana, 7. 
They were going through the ceremony largely for the children. They wanted their kids to have the legal security of two married moms. It was purely about the rights, the paperwork, the technicalities, just a formality, a ritual dressing up a legal necessity. And then, to her shock, Kate realized that marriage meant more to her than she'd ever realized. Usually, when a couple writes their own vows, it's a disaster. The crowd grits their teeth at the attempted eloquence or roll their eyes at the idea that, at this point in Western civilization, any couple could possibly have any new insight to share on the nature of love. But Kate and Sandy didn't try to dazzle anyone with their words or to expound on the definition of marriage. They just said how they felt. Recalling the ceremony years later, Kate grew instantly emotional, as though she was standing there in the mayor's office all over again. What I remember saying to Sandy, because this is so how I feel about her, she paused to collect herself, is that I'm a better person because of her, that I want to be a better person when I'm around her. She smiled, and what she said to me, and where I totally lost it, is when she said something like, you're the first person who I feel truly gets me, and understands me, who I feel completely free with. These words were not about rights, or paperwork, or legal protections, but about something far bigger, and also far cornier. Love and commitment. Most of us don't talk about those emotions much, even with the people for whom we actually feel them. Sure, you can say, I love you, but how weird would it be to constantly tell someone, I want to be a better person when I'm around you, or you're the first person I feel completely free with? No one was more surprised than me how deeply moving it was, Kate said. There are things I said to Sandy in front of those 40 people that I would never say on a day-to-day -day basis. So why don't we say those things more often? Why save them for special rituals when we're wearing our most uncomfortable shoes? I think it's because in a truly happy, healthy, successful relationship, those feelings are simply too colossal to make sense in a single statement. To trust another person so deeply that you join your entire life with them is a profound and life-changing act, not to mention insane. You can't express it in just a few sentences. You can't fit it in a Valentine's Day card. You definitely can't squeeze it into a billboard or skywriting or a boombox held aloft by a love-struck admirer. If you want to describe a relationship, a really good one, the kind that everyone dreams of, you need more than words. You need a vessel that can contain the enormity of love and commitment that a couple like Kate and Sandy feel for each other. That vessel is marriage. Of course, let's be realistic here. A lot of marriages, maybe even most, feature all the right words and doves and cake, but fizzle out a few years later. Not every marriage lasts a lifetime, and having a marriage doesn't guarantee that you're in love. But at least it has the potential. Everyone hopes that they can someday be an adorable 80-year-old couple, still holding hands and gently teasing each other with a smile and a kiss in matching tracksuits. And that's why I was so mystified that James and I still weren't married and so frightened when he told me he'd be leaving. It would only be a few months. Work was sending him to Stockholm to oversee a project from the end of September until sometime that spring. He softened this news by taking me to a Little Mermaid sing-along at the Castro Theater for my birthday, so I couldn't be too upset. I was not thrilled about his impending absence, but I was more troubled by the knowledge that we would not be among the happy couples getting married before the vote on Prop 8. He had made his feelings clear. No way was he having a wedding. His reasoning was clear enough. Our relationship was great without being married. Marriages fail all the time and are no guarantee of stability. And if we were going to be a couple, it should be because we wanted to be, not because a contract would make it a pain in the neck to separate. To him, marriage actually weakened a relationship by forcing couples to stay together whether or not they were still in love. If we were going to share our lives, he felt, it should be because we decided to do so every day. So that was that. No wedding. 
I understood his reasoning, but it still hurt. Particularly since you couldn't walk out the door that summer without stumbling over a wedding party. All of my friends had stopped talking about boyfriends and girlfriends, and were now husbands and wives. Embarrassed and feeling left out, I started referring to James as my husband too. This, in hindsight, was a terrible idea since it only led to confusion. First, a round of congratulations, then awkward clarifications, then universal befuddlement from everyone around me. But at the time, a marriage was the only institution I could think of that could possibly describe a successful relationship, and the only way I could think of to describe my happy, healthy seven-year relationship was a marriage. Except we weren't actually married. See, it's confusing. But with the looming election, James's departure, and the gut punch news of Dell's death, I found myself obsessed with the tantalizing closeness of marriage, and so I determined to stop Prop Eight. So that marriage could still be on the table when James returned that spring. Maybe a few months in Europe would change his mind. I told myself that my motivations were more altruistic. Of course, I was doing it for everyone else. I was looking out for the other couples across California who wanted to wed but couldn't get to the altar by November fourth, two thousand eight. Yeah, sure, that's the ticket. Fighting Prop Eight was to be the last joint project that James and I would share before he left. Though marriage wasn't particularly important to him, he could tell that the cause mattered to me. And so he joined me in a little project I cooked up. We would go out, find gay and lesbian couples who wanted to marry, interview them, and post mini documentaries about them on the internet, thereby persuading California to vote no on Proposition Eight. In other words, before he left me for the other side of the world, I arranged for us to spend several weeks marinating in marriage. We started with Jackie and Britta, two lesbians I met online. They had been married a few weeks earlier, and before the ceremony, Britta had nonchalantly called her dad. Hi, Dad," she said. "I'm getting married. Well, can she cook?" he replied. We joined them at their home just a few blocks from City Hall, setting up a camera and microphones as a gray cat named Tahini slithered between the tripod legs. They had only been married a few weeks and still had a giddy glow, but when conversation turned to Prop Eight, Jackie grew somber. It seems strange to me that my friends and neighbors and teachers, people I've grown up next to, don't think I should get married," she said. I mean, who would look me in the eye and say I don't want you to be happy? Britta asked as the camera rolled. What kind of person would do that? Wonderful. I quickly edited the video and posted it to YouTube, where it drew a couple hundred views. Next, we drove up to the North Bay to interview my coworker Leah and her wife Barb. They'd been together for twenty-five years. You might say it was a typical lesbian wedding because we met at a potluck. Leah said. They too had been married as soon as they could. I glanced at James as they talked about the urgent need to wed, but he was stoic. They say it's the happiest day of your life, but you don't really understand what that means until you experience it. Leah smiled. That video racked up a few hundred more views. We found Eva and Cynthia right before James departed. They lived in an airy Mission District apartment and were optimistically planning to marry in a few months. They were in their mid twenties, very cute, and head over heels in love. They couldn't keep their eyes off each other throughout the interview. I wanted to celebrate our love in front of our family. Cynthia said, snuggling next to Eva. It's the next natural step in a relationship, said Eva. I just look forward to growing old together," Cynthia said, drawing from Eva a delighted coo of "Yeah." It wasn't until after James had flown away that I interviewed Sharon and Amber. Unlike the previous couples, I went to their house alone, set up the equipment by myself, and conducted the interview without James's help. He was just getting settled in Stockholm at that point, getting used to the foreign McDonald's menu. McFeast could be ordered without having to learn Swedish, and making the mistake of trying Yatasalt. Amber told me the story of how, after they'd been dating for a few years, she surprised Sharon with a vacation and presented her with a scrapbook that she had made out of all their love letters. Sharon turned to the last page to find Scrabble tiles spelling, "Will you marry me?" 
It was just a given that when you love someone and you have the deepest commitment to share your lives together and you want to have a family together, marriage is what that means, Sharon said, gazing happily at the book. I thanked them, packed up the gear, headed back to the car, and cried all the way back to my empty apartment. There was one month to go before the election. Jared Scherer spent the days leading up to November 4th sprinting around the city on urgent wedding house calls. Friends who realized that Prop 8 was about to pass kept calling him desperate. Can you marry us? Whatever you want, he would tell them. I'll come to your office. I'll come to your house. You come to my office, or I'll find a little park somewhere. The summer's optimism had become frantic. He spent the night before the election at City Hall, staying as late as possible to marry as many people as he could. From there, he rushed to a friend's house to marry them in their living room while their dog looked on. The next morning, he took a day off of work and headed to the East Bay with ten or so friends. The campaign had provided them with signs, the address of a polling location, and asked them to stand there all day, reminding people to vote no. When they arrived, the polling station turned out to be a church. Oh shit, said Jared, what are we doing here? They did what they could, waving their no signs and engaging with passers-by when possible. It felt like they were panhandlers begging for their rights. You guys ought to be ashamed, one man told them. I don't believe in anything you're doing. Okay, Jared said, unsure what he could say at this point to sway the voters' mind. Have a nice day? It was humiliating. As the sun set, they packed up and headed off, stealing a McCain-Palin sign from the lawn across the street. After spending all day in oppressive Alameda, Jared needed to be someplace where he didn't feel unwelcome, so they headed to the Castro. A giant screen had been set up at the intersection of Castro and Market, and a crowd of hundreds gathered under the giant flapping rainbow flag atop Harvey Milk Plaza to watch the returns. It was a fairly cool night, clear and in the upper fifties, and the crowd cheered and danced as the returns from East Coast states rolled in. CNN can now project that Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president-elect of the United States. Wolf Blitzer announced on CNN at around 9 p.m. Pacific time, cameras cutting to a colossal cheering rally at Grant Park in Chicago. On the screen, 240,000 people, many with tears streaming down their faces, waved flags and chanted USA as the cameras swung back and forth. The screams were deafening, both at the Chicago rally and in the Castro. They're really excited, Blitzer helpfully added. But the mood in San Francisco became somber as the California results appeared. Around 9.30 p.m., the dancers began to tire and the crowd quieted. A news helicopter hovered overhead, broadcasting footage of the throng on MSNBC. There's a celebration pouring out of the Castro district, said one reporter. That may not all be celebration in the Castro if we haven't got Prop 8 yet, Rachel Maddow pointed out. For a while, with only spotty reporting by a few precincts, it was impossible to tell whether Prop 8 was passing. First it was ahead, then it was behind, then it was ahead, then it was more ahead, then even more. Jared and his friends stared up at the screen, hoping that the measure's momentum would slow. But it wouldn't. Prop 8 kept pulling further and further into the lead. Other than the death of my mother and my brother, it was the worst day of my life, Kate said of that night. I had to go about my regular life, but it was the sort of time that I would be very happy to never go through again. The No on 8 campaign had booked a ballroom in a downtown hotel, and they too were gathered around a large screen. But the crowd was thin, with most supporters slipping off to the far more jubilant Obama celebration in the ballroom down the hall. It was really weird and awkward, Terry Stewart said. I just remembered being really sad. She was there with her wife, Carol, sitting at a table and staring glumly at a TV. Shortly after 9 p.m., they called their teenage daughter, Natasha. She was with friends at an Obama party. It was the first election she had ever voted in. She was ecstatic, Terry said. We wanted to be as happy and excited as she was. 
She and Carol swallowed their disappointment over Prop 8 and joined her in celebrating over the phone as best they could. Chad Griffin was sitting off to the side with Gavin Newsom. A political consultant, Chad had been brought in to advise the campaign in its final three weeks, long after it was clear that disaster loomed. His political career had started at the age of 19, when he walked into a Clinton campaign office to volunteer. A few months later, Clinton won, and Chad dropped out of college to accept an entry-level job at the White House. By 2008, Chad was co-founder of his own political consulting firm in Los Angeles, known for his knack for media manipulation. A few years earlier, he'd convinced Californians to approve a 10% tax on cigarettes to fund early childhood education. When the Prop 8 campaign reached out to him for help, he dropped everything and immediately whipped up an aggressive new TV commercial to rebut the claim that gay marriage was about to invade the state's schools. Overnight, he got Superintendent of Schools Jack O'Connell to shoot a message reassuring parents and urging a no vote. Within a week, the campaign had regained eight polling points. But it wasn't enough. That night at the hotel, he clustered around a computer screen with the rest of the campaign leadership. You could have heard a pin drop in the room, he told me. There was no celebration. We listened to Obama's speech in sort of silence. It was a night that should have been so exciting. And then, for just a moment, it looked like their fortune might actually turn around. A new precinct reported in, and Prop 8 dropped from 52% to 51%, and then to 50%. Oh my God, we're going to do it, thought Kate, her heart in her throat. And then Prop 8 was back to 51% again. Then 52. Well, Kate thought, that's it. Sandy was there with her and their two kids, but they had gone upstairs to a hotel room to sleep earlier in the evening. It wasn't until 1.30 a.m. that Kate came up to join them. Sandy woke up when Kate entered. We lost, said Kate. And then they didn't say another word. They just lay awake in bed until 6 a.m. Kate ached with a sadness that she hadn't felt since her mother passed away. Sandy woke the kids when the sun started to rise, and Kate took a shower while Sandy filled them in on the election results. When she came out, she saw her wife and her two children look up at her, and she saw sadness on their faces. It was the first time that their family had been so invested in an election, the first time that Kate had been so absent from the family while she toiled on a campaign. Julian and Ariana had been to celebrations at the start of marriages, to their mother's wedding, and to their first election night party. Julian had made no innate posters at school, and now they were experiencing their first loss. I can't let them think that somehow our life has changed, she thought. Hey, you guys, she said. I know Mommy told you that Prop 8 passed and we lost, but I want you to know that our family is fine. Our family is going to be fine. And even though I'm sad, Mommy and I love each other, and we're going to keep fighting. We're going to win this thing. And you're going to be fine, and our family's okay. The words hung there for a moment. Well, said Julian, we'll win the next time. Uh, yeah. time? I've been recording this whole time. Oh, well, good thing I didn't say anything embarrassing, like uh, talk about my trip to the, the convention this weekend. That's true. You've been a busy beaver. I have. Well, a busy bunny. I. Uh, That's not a thing, but I understand <laughs> what you mean. Bunnies can be busy. I hopped down to uh, to SeaTac, the city of SeaTac, to uh, visit Rainforest, uh, the Pacific Northwest's largest furry convention. Going to be writing for it, uh, writing about it for uh, for a particular Seattle newspaper that uh, often covers stranger events. Uh, so I got to meet a lot of uh, a lot of animals. What kind of animals did you meet? Mostly furry ones, but I met some pterodactyls and some Pokemon. It's hard to tell exactly how furry they are in the cartoon. 
Uh, and uh, there were some there were some birds. There were some owls. There uh, these are all I should say people dressed up in costumes as these things. They all they all harboring some sort of animal fursona. What, well, you just used you've just dropped the term fursona. You're going to have to explain that. Must I? I feel like fursona is like the easiest furry okay, terminology. So you brought this up. You you've opened I have, Pandora's I have. furry this, box. This is, maybe, this is maybe not the thing to open the podcast with. Well, now you've done it. <laughs> I have. I have. Well, if you want to know more about my adventures with the furries, uh, stay tuned to my Twitter feed. Uh, I'll have a link to the article once it goes up. That's at Matt Baum on Twitter. How have you tricked me into getting so far afield from from the topic of this actual podcast? I didn't bring it up at all. <laughs> you didn't. I did not. You didn't. That's not how I was planning to to start this. How are you planning to informal start? chat? We're uh, what, what are we talking about? This chapter is uh, about all the Prop Eight stuff. This is filling in some gaps for you because you were not here when uh, that election was happening. That is true, and I am glad I was not because I was not interested <laughs> in Prop Eight at all. And it was a it was a traumatic time, was it? To be completely frank, I had to hold back tears. <laughs> I was really choked up. That's Jared Scherer. He's in this chapter. Uh, he describes standing outside the polling place and taking abuse from voters all day on election day. I sort of choked back my anger and my rage and my tears and my sadness. I was really trying to hold it together. You know, who? what other group of people has to do that and, and be out in public sort of begging to keep their rights? We have to be sometimes in a bit of a state of denial to continue doing the work that we know needs to be done. That's Jenny Pizer with Lambda Legal. Back then, she was traveling all over the state to speak out against Proposition 8. It's like, you know, when you're on a hike (laughs) and you see the hill and you're working toward that hill. And even if you know (laughs) there may well be another hill behind that hill, you focus on the hill in front of you to get to that hill. And then when you get there, sure enough, maybe there's another hill and it's a higher hill. But you have to be in a little bit of a state of denial. But if you really looked at the campaign, there were so many warning signs. I remember them pretty clearly, like working on the campaign as a volunteer at the time. I mean, Cleve Jones, who wasn't even a part of the campaign, uh, he was just living in conservative Riverside County during 2008. Uh, He wasn't seeing any ads for no on Prop 8. Uh, So he called the campaign to ask why, and he spoke to one of the campaign leaders. I said, I'm just curious why my boyfriend and my sister in liberal Bay Area are seeing all these TV spots. I'm in, River, in the Riverside media market, and I'm not seeing any. And you know what he, he said? Well, most of our money comes from people in the Bay Area, and they need to see the ads to feel good about donating. So I thought, okay, great. You think it's more important to stroke the ego of your don- egos of your donors than be strategic about fighting it out in the media markets where it needs to be fought out. So I had some concerns, but everybody kept saying it was fine. So Lance and I both made the decision to spend a lot of time in Nevada helping the Obama campaign. So it was kind of ironic and horrible in a way for both of us to come back that week. You know, there was an action. I had one. I still had an old school answering machine. And on it, uh, when I got back from Nevada, there was a robocall from the Yes on Eight people that had Barack Obama's voice saying, I, I, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Ah, yes, those robocalls. James, you probably don't remember those because you weren't here at the time. 
those were Prop 8, pro-Prop 8 robocalls uh, that made it sound like Barack Obama was calling to endorse Proposition 8. Wait a minute. Did Barack Obama endorse Prop 8? In fact, he explicitly came out against Proposition 8. But gee whiz, wouldn't you know it, the no-one Prop 8 campaign really did not use that piece of information. The odds were totally stacked for us to defeat Prop 8. That's Molly McKay. She's the grassroots activist that we heard from in previous chapters. I was watching your turns at the uh, St. Francis Hotel at an event that I almost felt like I was crashing because we hadn't really been invited. I remember being so amazed to learn that, that they could call President Obama so early and being so happy about that. And then kind of being in denial and watching the returns, and they were close enough as they were coming in. It still looked like we had a shot, but sort of like the sinking feeling of like, oh, my God, Prop 8 is going to pass. And then I woke up the next day, and when I heard the news, I just remember crying the whole way to work. (laughs) I was just a mess. I was just so upset. Because not only did I feel like, oh my gosh, you know, who are all these people that voted against us? You know, how could people be so heartless to each other? Wasn't long after Prop 8 passed that things started getting rocky between Molly and her partner, Davina. You know, the strain on the relationship and on the marriage really was more like in your book how you talk about Janora and her wife and just the constant pressure and strain of being poster couples, being recognized everywhere you go, the whole notion that you should be in the same giddy wedded bliss you are on the day of your wedding on day one versus, you know, year 15, which is, you know, changes and we weren't allowed to kind of grow up because we kept standing on that threshold the whole time. You know, being in a wedding dress is an amazing experience for the day, but for 15 years, it's, um, it's difficult. Molly wanted to keep fighting Prop 8. Davina said no, she was done. Uh, she needed a break from all this marriage equality stuff. And suddenly, that one thing that had defined their relationship for over a decade, uh, that wasn't there anymore. And before long, they had split up. Not only was I losing the love of my life, but I was losing my, my life's work. Because, of course, you know, you don't have, you can't speak as a happy married couple if, if your wife is telling you she's divorcing you. And it was heartbreaking, too. It was very, very painful. Very painful. Of course, like, I'm listening to KFOG and they're talking about uh, long-term gay rights couples, Davina, Tatoski, and Molly McKay, you know, divorce, while Prop 8's still in effect. And it's just like, oh, my God, just shoot me. <laughs> you know, here I am, like, spending my whole life towards working for this vision. And now I'm, my own personal life is like harming, you know, my way of thinking of it was like, I'm harming. And here I am, we're holding ourselves up to be this commitment of marriage, which should be forever and a lifetime commitment. And here we are, we can't even make it. And also I was being, I had a number of reporters calling me, you know, wanting me to comment. I'm like, oh my God, go away. I don't have anything to say. I don't have talking points on this. I'm sorry. What can you say when your heart gets broken? Uh, let me just circle back to Barack Obama for a second. He didn't support Prop 8, but he also didn't support marriage equality, did he? Yeah, he was walking that delicate tightrope that Democrats were trying to maintain for a couple of years of, um, oh, well, uh, I don't believe in marriage for gay people, but I also think it's unnecessary to ban it. Obviously, a lot of them actually did support marriage equality, but that was not a winning proposition. Uh, they could either come out in favor of marriage equality and lose elections, or they could try to do this 
cute little political maneuver where they're like, oh, uh, I'm somewhere in the middle where I think it's between a man and a woman, but I also think that it's none of our business if gay people get married. Well, I was listening to last week's episode of Linoleum Knife, a podcast of the cinema. Wonderful, with Dave and and Alonzo. That is correct. And uh, they were talking about a movie that features something about Rick Warren, uh, the head of the Saddleback Church. And they were talking about how Barack Obama, when he was campaigning uh, in 2008, went to the Saddleback Church and, like, specifically made a I don't believe in gay marriage speech. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the Yes on Prop 8 side made use of that soundbite. Uh, you heard that during the election. I did not, because I was in Sweden. Bork, bork, bork. Yeah, but Barack Obama specifically said, uh, it's between a man and a woman, God's in the mix. Uh, so that was... Uh, painful that hurt to hear barack say that but you know also it's also painful to have god in there yes what's he doing here yeah once barack changed his mind in 2012 that really or was it 2011 that really opened the doors and and made people feel made politicians a lot more comfortable it gave them the political cover to say okay yeah me too the president says it's okay so so i do too now but we really took barack obama's leadership to, to make that happen it didn't take Gavin Newsom saying that the, the door is wide open, and so am I, whether you like it or not. Yeah, Gavin was perhaps a bit premature on that. Um, we'll be talking about that a little bit more in, in some future chapters. Um, what? It's in this chapter. It is in this chapter, but we're going to be coming back to it. Oh. Yeah. So it's uh, the gift that keeps giving. It, it, well, kind of, kind of. Or the, the coal that keeps burning. I don't know. It's you might regard it as a gift what Gavin did or you might regard it as a terrible idea. So we're going to be we're going to be talking to uh some folks who uh thought that it was a terrible idea and still do to this day. They thought it was lousy coal. They thought it was lousy coal, dirty coal from Gavin Newsom. <laughs> There yeah. were some kids, Julian and Ariana. Uh, they described how their school stopped classes and held assemblies to uh, explain mm-hmm. the Prop 8 ruling. Yeah. Now, is this when teachers were explaining anal sex to kids? Because that was in a lot of the ads. Oh, well, I don't know if they were explaining anal sex, but they were definitely converting children to homosexuality. Okay. They were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the argument uh, during the campaign. Oh, boy, those ads that would come on. It was, you know, there was this ad of a little girl coming home and bringing a, a Prince and Prince book, I think was the title of it. Or King and King. King and King. King and King. Yeah. And she said, we learned in school today that a prince can marry a prince and I can marry a princess. And so all of a sudden, this little man appears on the screen and he says, think it can happen? It's already happened. But like, what's already happened? Schools have talked about there being gay couples? Well, yeah, of course they have because there are kids at the school who have gay parents. Well, she's been recruited she's now. Been recruited, she yes. never would have had the idea that she could be into princesses. Yes. Uh, no little girl has ever been into the idea of princesses until gay marriage is forced down their throat. Yes. I don't know. Well, I mean, that was the, that was the argument, that they're going to come and they're going to turn your children gay. Mm-hmm. And that message worked. Uh, the demographics show, or the, the, the tracking, the polling shows that even in liberal Bay Area, moms were persuaded by that. And the No on Prop 8 campaign did not have a good counter message. Well, the no on Prop 8 campaign had no counter messages, as far as I can tell. Like, the uh, the Obama campaign in 2008 uh, seemed to have learned a lot from the John Kerry swift boating. Like, mm-hmm. whenever something untrue came out from, uh, it was McCain, right, at the time? Yep. 
didn't the Obama campaign have a 24 hour rule yeah. that they wouldn't let something untrue sit for more than 24 hours? Yeah. I mean, that was very different from the swift boating and, and from the prop eight thing. I mean, it took two weeks to respond to the children thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a long period of not responding to it. And when they did respond, it was with this really weak ad that was semi-effective. It featured a politician, not a politician, it was the superintendent of schools um, saying, no, no, that's a lie. We're not going to teach about marriage in the schools. But you know, if you're a mom and you hear like your kid's going to come home with these books Having a, you know, a, a bureaucrat say, don't worry about it, that's not so reassuring. It would it'd be years before we figured out how to inoculate ourselves against that message. How do you do it? You say, it doesn't matter what they teach in schools because we're strong parents and our, our kids learn values at home. So whatever we teach them at home are the values that they keep with them. So you don't have to worry about schools. Okay. That works. That works. That worked in Minnesota. It worked in Maine. It worked in Maryland. It worked in Washington. Because the campaign, the, the um, anti-gay side... Use that message again. They recycled it because they're not dumb. It worked. Mm -hmm. Uh, They used it again. And we had a good message prepared and completely inoculated voters where voters heard the other side's message and they were like, oh, yeah, but our kids learn values at home. It must have been shocking to the other side to be like, we're going to use that all. They're they're coming for your kids message. Wait, wait, it's not working. Ah, oh, no. What's going on? During Prop 8, there were multiple polls and uh, apparently one of them showed no on eight being ahead. And this is very confusing because no on eight Mm. means yes on gay marriage and yes on eight means no. Exactly. It um, is super confusing. But anyway, there was uh, uh, there, there was some polling that showed that no on eight was winning, but then there was other polling that said it was losing. The poll that said that no on eight was winning, why was it so wrong? What was the flaw with that poll? It's a very unsatisfying answer. Uh, there was It was a mix of bad methodology and Bradley effect where voters say what they think pollsters want to hear. Um, and yeah, it just was not a well-conducted poll and the internal polls were a lot better. So why didn't the campaign use the better polls? Like, did they not know they existed? Oh no, the campaigns were doing them. They were the campaign's polls internally. The campaigns were running polling and they had much more accurate data. Right. So why didn't they use that? They did eventually, but it was a big fight. So within the campaign, common knowledge is that you never say that you are losing because people don't want to contribute, the conventional wisdom goes, people don't want to contribute to a losing campaign. That's really more only true with candidates than causes. Because you don't want to contribute to a candidate if they're going to lose, because that's just throwing your money away. You're not going to be able to buy access if they lose. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you donate to a cause, you're not donating for access. You're donating for the cause. Sure. I mean... It would be insane for PBS or NPR to go on the air during a pledge drive and say, we've got plenty of money, folks. We are winning. We are not putting anything into tote bags this year. Sesame Street is fine. Mr. Rogers is fine. Three, two, one contact. We've got it coming out the ass, folks. We do not need any money. So call now to donate. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That's exactly what the Yes on 8 campaign was doing. Uh, so there was this fight behind the scenes where the political establishment uh, who's working on the campaign said no we can't release data that shows that we're losing that's going to make us look terrible nobody's going to believe in us nobody's going to want to donate money and it was the political outsiders who were working on the campaign who said are you kidding me people aren't going to donate unless they know that we're going to go down in flames and so eventually that's the side that won and the information came out that we were losing by a landslide and that's when all the money started right i mean princess leia said help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope she didn't say obi-wan everything's great but if you've got a free minute, Alderaan could use you. 
She also said, I should have recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. She did? Not That's, to Obi-Wan. No, no. That no, would no. be very rude. It would be quite rude. You wouldn't say that to Obi-Wan, although you can't tell me, like, he didn't... He well, he was, yeah, in hot, hot robes in the desert. Yeah. I don't know. I, we never see the Millennium Falcon's showers. We do not. I just realized this chair that I'm in makes a little squeaky sound constantly, so there's probably oh, going to be a lot a of... Chair. Oh, how dare you. Try to hold still. You say everybody hopes that someday they can be an adorable 80-year-old couple still holding hands and gently teasing each other with a smile and a kiss and missing tracks... Missing? Matching tracksuits. Everyone? All right. Not everyone. Many people. Many people wish for a long life of comfort and companionship. That's what I'm saying there. I know you don't want matching tracksuits. Okay. I just... Sometimes when you write about relationships and marriage... You use terms like everyone, and I take umbrage with those because often I'm like, eh, not really. You don't want that? You don't want to, you want to be teasing each other cutely when we're 80? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's not the worst thing that could happen. There are worse outcomes. Okay. What would you like us to be doing when we're 80? I, first of all, want a robot body, and uh, I want it to be powered by both of our brains. And I want it to be like all of me, where I control the right half and you control the left half. Mm-hmm. And we have very different agendas, and we are struggling with each other <laughs> in order to complete basic tasks like pouring a glass of orange juice or put our pants on. Sure. Because it will be a robot that wears pants and runs on orange juice. Uh, yeah. Oh, so you say that you were not thrilled by my impending absence, and that you were more troubled by the knowledge that we would not be among the happy couples getting married before the vote on Prop 8. Did you really think there was any possibility that we were going to be getting married when that stuff was happening? Uh, no. I knew that chances were pretty slim about that. that slim? Yeah. Okay. Chances were none okay. that that was going to be happening. Um, and it bummed me out. I had very complicated feelings there. I knew that that wasn't going to be happening, and I knew that it wasn't something that made sense to push for, because if I pressured you into it, that wouldn't be much of a marriage. And I thought, like, well, maybe there's an evolution that can happen where we will get married eventually, and if Prop 8 passes, uh, it might not happen. I see. So that wide-open door that Gavin was holding, you felt, mm. was slamming shut. I felt like we needed that forever. door to be held open indefinitely so that uh, I could change you. I see. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, we see how far that's gotten us. Now, you say here that to me, you say to him, but to him here is me. I am him. Marriage actually weakened a relationship by forcing couples to stay together even after falling out of love. I'm not sure that's exactly what I think. So first of all, I don't think love is related to marriage. I don't think it's a component of marriage. There is no love test if you want to get married. Like, you don't have to declare love. It's not a part of this, the, the document that you signed, but mm-hmm. I think love is very much a part of the social construct and the decision to marry. I think it can be. I think people marry for different reasons. Some marry for love, which is a fairly recent innovation. But you can have a marriage, and many people do have a marriage, that love is simply not a component of. And whether they stay together or not, I don't think is terribly love-dependent. I think people either choose, once they're married, to stay together or not for all sorts of reasons. And love may be one of them, but in many cases, I'm not sure it is. I think the vast majority of people who marry are in love. Sure. But uh, what you were saying is that when couples fall out of love, 
that marriage is the thing that keeps them together. Okay, I see what you're saying, that that's an oversimplification, that it's not just like a one-to-one, the love drops below a certain level on the graph, and it passes the divorce threshold, and suddenly the marriage falls apart. Yeah, I I get that that's not how it works, that marriage is a complicated institution. There are lots of things that contribute to the end or success, to the end or continuation of a marriage, because a marriage can end and still be successful. Well, or a marriage can continue without love. Yeah, no, 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 I think that's correct. I think that's correct. I'd say there's a correlation, but you're right that it's not a one-to-one correlation. Yeah, there's a conflation of love, commitment, and marriage, that these three things all are, are linked and go together in a way that I don't believe they do. I think you can have a, I, I think you can have love without commitment and without marriage. I think you can have commitment without love or marriage, and I think you can have a marriage without love or commitment. I think often they get bundled up when people talk about marriage, like, oh, marriage, it's this thing that's full of love and commitment. And it's like, well, neither of those are essential components to a marriage. Boy, oh boy, you're going to hate some of the upcoming chapters. Eh, whatever. I mean, I, I, I know that that's what, what people do is they bundle those things up, but all a marriage is is, you know... You go in to some office and you say, you know, I choose to sign this contract with another person and nobody's checking that you're in love. Nobody's checking that you're committed and vice versa. You can be totally committed to someone and not be in love with them and not be married to them. And you can love someone. You can go to Paris for the summer, knowing that it's going to end, have a loving relationship with someone for that summer, both of you knowing that it's not going to extend past that, and have a great experience. Yeah, I agree that marriage, the document, has nothing to do with love and commitment. But I think marriage... The, the state of mind does. When you say marriage, you could be talking about many different things. You could mm-hmm. be talking about the civil process, which, yeah, that's a legal state. And your the amount of love and commitment doesn't really matter until you start getting into, oh, we're getting divorced. Well, what's the reason and how much and why? Whose fault is it? But, yeah, I agree that when you sign that document, nobody's checking to see if you – are you two in love? Mm-hmm. The government doesn't care, which is why the government shouldn't be in the marriage business to begin with. But that's another topic for another podcast. That is another topic. Yes. The personal decision, are we going to get married? I think that love and commitment are very much a part of that consideration for many couples, for the majority of couples. Sure. And so if you have a relationship with love and commitment, what does marriage bring to the table? What does marriage add to that that makes it better? Participation in a social structure that is familiar and comfortable. What if you don't give a shit about that? Then marriage isn't for you. Aha. (laughs) This isn't a revelation. I know. I'm just... I am letting you clarify my position so that I don't come off as a villain. Okay. Because, I I mean, I I am in many respects the antagonist of this book. If you are the protagonist, I am in opposition to your goals. I would say that I am in opposition to my goals with my mistaken assumptions about what it is that I need to have a strong relationship. And... I am experiencing a learning process over the course of the book about what exactly it is I want out of a relationship with you, you villain. (laughs) So you have a man-versus-man plot and a man-versus-self plot. I do. It's like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. (laughs) It's not. Sure, let's say that it is. That may be my strongest review yet. Yes, you've committed suicide, and this is all a dream. (laughs) Fabulous. Uh, Anyway, the point is, James, you're welcome. (laughs) 
for making your point for you. Well, no, but uh, but you you did not answer me. If you have love and you have commitment, what does marriage bring to the table? I did answer that. Participation in a social structure oh, that okay. is familiar and comforting. And it only brings that as a benefit if that's something you care about. If it does not, then marriage provides a blender. <laughs> Uh, you did answer that, and I'm too tired to remember. So, <laughs> All right. I can see the depth of your commitment. <laughs> you say that around this time, all of your friends had stopped talking about boyfriends and girlfriends, and were now talking about husbands and wives. Is that true? I don't all right, remember. Maybe not any... all my friends. Many of my friends. Really? Yeah. It was, it was quite a thing. A lot of our friends were not quite ready to get married, but a bunch were, particularly my coworkers. Okay. Well, so you and I had very different coworker we circles different... and uh, and friend circles to some extent, because mm-hmm. this was not a phenomenon. Really? Okay. No, I, I think that's true. Yeah. Thinking back to the folks that you knew. You mentioned that around this time you started referring to me as your husband. Let me tell you, that was confusing and annoying. I agree. Uh, it felt very embarrassing for other adults around me to say husband and for me to have a relationship of seven years and still be saying boyfriend. I wasn't comfortable saying partner at the time. I am now. But at the time, partner sounded like a compromise that I wasn't happy with. As you mentioned in the chapter, it puts everyone in a really weird position where they're like, oh, when did you get married? Here's the thing. For many years, decades, gay men could say husband, and that was fine. And people knew that that just meant that it was a gay man who was in a relationship with another gay man, and they'd been together for a long time. And there were no questions about certificates and and licenses and ceremonies, because it was just a thing that, okay, sometimes gay men do this. But it was so new that gay men could have husbands that it it, it was confusing in a way that it hadn't been for, for decades prior. Okay, but in the scenario that you're describing... There's a mutual husbanding? (laughs) Yeah, that there was some agreement that one person wasn't saying husband and the other wasn't... And the other was saying bum chum. You weren't saying... How did you describe me? Uh, All sorts of different ways. Yes. Um, My confirmed bachelor, my long-term companion. Okay. I, I I, I don't care or want other people thinking about my relationships. Um, and so if it's a puzzling puzzler, then fine. I mean, I might go hang out with friends or even coworkers or, I don't know, my personal trainer and say something like, uh, oh, I watched a movie with James the other day. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, who's James? And today I'd say my partner. Um, when we had just met, I'd say my boyfriend. In this confusing time of 2007 and 2008, I might have wanted to say husband because we'd been together for a long time and we were in love and we were committed and I felt like we had a strong relationship and I felt embarrassed that we'd been together for so long and we weren't married. That's not a way that I feel anymore. Uh, but I had a stigma attached to unmarriage. What was the nature of the stigma? Like, what were you feeling? There were two things. One is that I felt like it was childish to say boyfriend as an adult. It's like, come on, what what are we going to the senior prom together? And the other is that my perception was that when you're in a relationship for a long time, marriage is just what you do after a couple of years. And if we weren't married, then there was some failure, some shortcoming in our relationship, some problem with the way that we related to each other uh, that we weren't addressing. 
Uh, and so I wanted to make it clear, oh, there's, there isn't a problem, because I don't think there was. I don't think there was a problem in our relationship. Sure. And I think you've just touched on one of my main problems with marriage, is that marriage creates two tiers of adult relationships, one that is considered legitimate and everything else that's considered illegitimate. So, you know, if you're married, you get a basket of goodies from the government, and you also get social approval. And if you're not then there's this pressure to move from whatever relationship status you're in inexorably up to marriage. And I think that's often an unexamined assumption about why are we doing this? Um, There is that basket of goodies, and we probably will have to marry at some point, or at least it would behoove us to, because even though I dislike it, you can't really stand on principle if you're shooting yourself in the foot. And there will come a time where, whether it's because we own a certain amount of property, or we're just old and frail and dying that it'll just make too much sense that day will probably come but i do think this unexamined assumption of we need to move from illegitimate relationship to legitimate relationship and and the carrot and stick involved in that are things i don't like i don't like being manipulated into this social construct that i don't understand the benefit of i agree that there's that stigma and that stigma is still very real that stigma still exists people still ask me why aren't you married or they assume that something's wrong that we're not married and a big change that i've experienced over the last few years is caring a lot less about what people think when they hear i'm not married caring more about how i feel about it than how other people react to it okay Is that satisfactory? Uh, yeah. No, I approve of that. Okay, good. You said that I ordered the McFeast because I couldn't speak Swedish. Yes. I couldn't be further from the truth. I got the McFeast because I liked it. It was that you were relieved that you liked the McFeast because you didn't want to have to say things in Swedish. Well, but everyone in Sweden speaks English, or at least everyone in Stockholm speaks English. And if you go into a restaurant, or particularly a McDonald's, and you try to order in Swedish, and it's clear that you're an English speaker... They're just like, no, 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 no. We're doing this in English. No, I had the McFeast because it was a it was a true feast. What was it? Was it fancy feast? No, it was like a Big Mac kind of. Oh. Though McDonald's was not the place to go for a burger. There was a place called Max where you could order your um you could order your hamburger from a robot. Did it have two brains? <laughs> pants. Um Yes, it was a very dapper two-brained robot. No, you'd <laughs> go up, orange juice. You didn't have to interact with humans. You would go to the robot. You would order your hamburger um, using big pictures. You didn't have to use uh, any language whatsoever. Uh, they had all these terrific dipping sauces, uh, Bernays, of course, because they put Bernays on everything there. And then you would go up to the counter, and it would just be ready for you. Your feast would be ready, and you would have to... Almost no interaction with humans. That does sound nice. They used to have something like that at the Jack in the Box in Hollywood. But the problem Mm. was, I guess, to accommodate people with visual disabilities, it would loudly speak every selection that you made. So it would broadcast to the whole restaurant what you were ordering. Uh, So that was probably even worse than having to go up and talk to a person. Your Swedish robot sounds... uh, vastly superior. Oh, it was so great. And uh, I look forward to that form of Cylon taking over. You said that while I was away, you came home to an empty apartment. You are 
erasing Gordon and Simon <laughs> from your personal history. Uh, I, they, I did not regard them as companions. Oh, goodness. Uh, those were our roommates. Uh, they were fine people, and Gordon was lovely for a conversation. Um, but he was not... He was not a, a comfort in the way that you were. <laughs> I can't believe I just described you as a comfort. Gordon was a dignified uh, British gentleman, and uh, Simon kept to himself. Well, later, I don't know if you talk about this in later chapters, you did replace me. I did have replace some companions. Me. I, I replaced you completely. I got, I, they're not in the book, actually. I got, they're not? No. They were such a big part of your life. Not a big part of the marriage battle, but uh, yeah, I got two rats named uh, Robin and Christopher. And they were my friends for a while while you were away. And then you came home to find that I had replaced you with two rats. You did. You ate all my electronics. They ate a lot of cables. You were not happy about that. I was not. You were not. Uh, And sometimes I would dress them in a trench coat and let them walk around the house. And it was like you were still there. Then they went through puberty and started attacking us. They did. And each other. I'll always remember the time I was cooking dinner and I heard you screaming. (laughs) Well, it was more hooting, really. And I came into the room to find a rat chasing you around the bedroom. You were trying to get away from him. You were spraying with water, I think. I was trying to do the thing you do with cats to like... But he just liked it. Yeah, yeah. He he was going for blood. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so uh, we had to snip one of them. Probably should have done both. Oh, well. They were good boys. I miss them. Yeah, smile. They They were delicious. (laughs) (laughs) You described Alameda as oppressive. It's not Macon, Georgia. Okay, sure, sure. Oppressive, maybe not. Jared Jared did not have a warm welcome there. There are shades of oppression. And I'm not sure that the suburban San Francisco Bay Area rises to the level of some other parts of the country. Fair enough. Well, I mean, it's not as... there, There probably weren't as many nude residents who were rallying around the right to wear a cock ring. There were fewer leathermen. Well, if listeners want to know exactly how many leathermen there were, they can send you questions where. Where can they do that? You can reach me at Matt Baum on Twitter, and you can also leave a review on this podcast. Mm, oh, here's a review from Fifi Rodriguez. It's so important that young LGBT people hear about how people before them fought for their rights. This book should be taught in school. I would have gone to class more often. Yes. Uh, thank you, Fifi. Uh, that's very kind. Uh, and anal sex should be taught in school as well. Yes. While converting uh, princesses to lesbians. <laughs> only, only princesses. Only princesses can become lesbians. Well, I'll... I was at a, um, a drag show last night. It was the Seattle Public Library's annual Banned Books Drag Show, which is wonderful. I love that we have a, a public library that puts on a drag show here in Seattle. And uh, someone from the LGBT commission got up and was talking. He was 22, and he was talking about uh, all the important work that the LGBT commission does. And he referred to the people who lived through uh, the worst of the HIV epidemic in the 80s as our ancestors. And I was standing next to some gentlemen who were a little bit older than me, probably in their 40s, and I could see the cringe of their generation being referred to as ancestors. We're not like the the ghosts of Mulan here. We're just... Whoa, uh, Jesus. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that. Mulan does have a whole, like, sequence with ancestors oh, yeah. in a... Yeah, okay. Well, if I were to consult the ancestors to find out in what's in next week's episode, what would they say? They'd say, that's your transition, really? <laughs> Uh, uh, well, so we've been getting very big with our stories in this book about Prop 8 and mayors and political maneuvering uh, and societal change. And so in the next chapter, we're going to get very small and uh, focus on one couple's experience with Prop 8 and the immediate aftermath. Get Small was a Steve Martin album, wasn't it? Yes, Steve Martin is the gay couple. It's just him. Well, if people, rather than wanting to get small, if they want to get your book... Good, good. Ancestors approve. 
Uh, where can they do that? It's on Amazon. You can search for Defining Marriage. And if you wouldn't mind leaving a review there, I'd be awfully grateful. You got a review from Rhonda that says, clearly written. Yes. And I don't know if Rhonda means that it was written in a manner that is clear, or if it is just clear that it was written. Both of those. And another one from Customer X. (laughs) From the Acme Corporation. Also, check out his podcast, The Sewers of Paris. Fresh, ongoing interviews with LGBT and what changed their slash our world. Yes, check out my other podcast, The Sewers of Paris. I have interviews uh, full of revealing stories about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. You can find The Sewers of Paris on the iTunes Store and Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast things. Last week, I had a wonderful interview with Brady about the First Wives Club and how it affected his life when he was in architecture school. And uh, this week, I have an interview with Patrick Bristow I'm very excited about. You may know him as the actor who's famous for shouting, Thrust It! in the movie Showgirls. You can also find me on YouTube. I've got a bunch of videos up there. Uh, in the past week, I've done one about Star Trek, another about the Birdcage, and I've got an upcoming video about a simulator, a video game where it simulates uh, hooking up with a man in the shower at uh, a gym in the locker room. So look out for that one. That'll make me thrust it. Mmm, yes. Meow. <laughs> good, good. I, I apologize, folks. I am so tired today. This is not been my most bushy-tailed. No, you're just fine. You you did a very good job of browbeating me about <laughs> all my ways of describing your position on marriage, which, you know, what? to be fair, it's very hard to describe someone else's position. I'm, uh, I hope I, I got close enough. My position is reverse cowgirl. Moo-moo. <laughs> <laughs> you see that at the furry convention? A reverse cowgirl? I didn't see any reverse cowgirls, no. I mean, it's still going on. I still have time to put together, throw together some kind of cowgirl costume and rush down there. So I'm, let me get to work on that. Big thanks to Jared Scherer, Jenny Pizer, Cleve Jones, and Molly McKay for speaking with me this week. Until next time, friends. By the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over. <laughs>